I'm sure, like myself, that if you've lived long enough, you realize the value of your family. And if you haven't, I'm sure that you will. And also, within our family context, our our need so many times to have grace, uh, to be able to, to love our families well and to be close to one another, just how profoundly important family is. The nuclear family and the attacks on the family are so rampant today. And with that in mind, in this uh, episode, the Joseph Reveal, we're going to dig deep into family dynamics and family structure. And, you know, if you've lived long enough, you realize that not every family is like yours, uh, that the leadership of the family may have different ideas or uh, philosophical viewpoints that inform the way that they do and act as a, a corporate entity. And if you're a student of family, as I've been, and a student of uh, what would build the best family, I hope in this episode you're going to really encounter what I believe is a presupposition that needs to sit in the background of how do we build a strong and viable family. In this episode, I'm going to go through a uh, really like a systematic theological position on atonement. Uh, and then in the next section, I, I'm going to lay out a biblical narrative of the life of, uh, that involves the life of the 12 sons and tribes of Israel. And then in the third section of this episode, I'm going to get in a personal narrative and then draw it to a conclusion about what happened to me and my family and how I think that uh, there's a model that is here that is very effective and will work for you. I'm actually going to start out with prayer. Because we really, we need the Lord. And Lord, I just ask you right now for grace. Grace by your Spirit to enter into a dialogue and a view of, of your atonement. An understanding of the way that you and what you're after in our families. Lord, I pray for like, there may be a need here to reset and to come into a place of Repentance, meaning that we, we need to change some of our direction and our focus. Uh, I pray right now that you would just encourage those who are listening to this episode uh, to dig deep with you and, and uh, you know, that this episode would be a dramatic shift in the way that we're viewing ourselves in light of what you've done for us and that you would see a restoration come to our homes. In your name we pray. Amen. So, I wanted to get into some of the various theories on atonement and what the atonement is about. So there are various theories, and throughout church histories, there have been several different views on the atonement, some true and some false. They've been put forth by different individuals or denominations. One of the reasons for the various views in that both the Old and New Testament reveal many truths about Christ's atonement and make it hard, if not impossible, to find a single theory that fully encapsulates or explains the richness of the atonement. What we discover as we study the scriptures is a rich and multifaceted picture of the atonement as the Bible puts forth many interrelated truths concerning the redemption that Christ has accomplished. Another contributing factor to the many different theories of the atonement is that much of what we can learn about the atonement needs to be understood from the experience and perspective of God's people in the Old Covenant sacrificial system. 
the atonement of Christ, its purpose, and what it accomplished is such a rich subject that volumes have been written about it. And so we're going to go over a brief view of atonement and how, looking at the different views, how we can take the view and see that some of them, they don't recognize the sinfulness of man or they don't bring in the substitutionary nature of the the atonement and show that it is, uh, some of of the views are very deficient or sometimes uh, deficient at best and heretical at worst. Now, you might be asking before I launch out on this, why is this important? And I've I just want to make this very clear. Your view on the atonement will, uh, your philosophical understanding of what Christ has done on the cross and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now will dramatically affect the way that you act and respond to others in your life. It is the implications of this episode. It's going to imply a like a theological and a philosophical treatise on how we view ourselves in light of our own sin and then how we treat and uh, in respect to others. And if you have a deficient or even a heretical or wrong view of the atonement, it will play out in the way that you relate to others. And I think that there are... And if you have a wrong view of yourself in light of your own need for redemption... It will play out in the way that you treat and the way that you act towards others that are around you every day. And so that is why we're taking the time here before in this Joseph Reveal episode to dig into this concept of atonement so that we can show in the next section after the break what happened in uh, the family of Jacob. And I'm going to attempt to show that biblical narrative and then again get into a personal narrative of what happened to me and my family and how it's been such a blessing in my life. One of the first views uh, was on atonement was called the ransom to Satan. This view sees the atonement of Christ as a ransom paid to Satan to purchase man's freedom and release him from being enslaved to Satan. It is based on a belief that man's spiritual condition is bondage to Satan and that the meaning of Christ's death was to secure God's victory over Satan. This theory has little, if any, scriptural support and has had few supporters throughout church history. It is unbiblical in that it sees Satan rather than God as the one who required that a payment be made for sin. Thus, it completely ignores the demands of God's justice as seen throughout Scripture. It also has a higher view of Satan than it should and views him as having more power than he really does. Now, you may have heard people around you say, well, the devil made me do it. And this is kind of where this ransom to Satan mentality comes from. You know, I just want to address the this right out. This is not a biblical view to say that the devil made me do it. People that say, well, boys will be boys, that understanding or some other entity caused me to act in the way that I just acted. You need to let go of that right now because this ransom to Satan. Satan is not more powerful than God. And so he doesn't make you do anything. So what this does is it has no scriptural support uh, for the idea that, that we owe anything to Satan. But throughout scripture, we see that God is the one who requires a payment for sin. And so there's, you know, we're not going to point a finger at the devil and make an excuse for wrongdoing. And if anybody's ever done that in your life, uh, 
you call foul on it right away. But none of us should be doing this. And I've seen it a lot pastorally. Well, it was because of the devil. That's why I acted the way. No, it's not. You acted that way because you chose to. And uh, whereas you may you may be influenced by the enemy, yes, but you chose to, to do that. And so that view is, that theory of atonement is defunct. I hope you can see that. The, there's another theory called the recapitulation theory. The theory states that the atonement of Christ has reversed the course of mankind from di- disobedience to obedience. It believes that Christ's life recapitulated all the stages of human life and in so doing, reverse the course of disobedience initiated uh, by Adam. And this theory can also not be supported uh, scripturally. Another theory, dramatic theory, this view sees the atonement of Christ as securing the victory in a divine conflict between good and evil and winning man's release from the bondage to Satan. The means of Christ's death was to ensure God's victory over Satan and provide a way to redeem the world out of its bondage to evil. The, uh, the mystical theory is the theory that sees the atonement of Christ as a triumph over his own sinful nature through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who hold this view believe that knowledge of this will mystically influence man and awaken his God consciousness. They also believe that man's spiritual condition is not the result of sin, but a lack of God consciousness. Clearly, this is unbiblical. To believe this, one must believe that Christ had a sin nature. And while Scripture is clear that Christ was a perfect God-man, sinless in every respect of his nature, Hebrews uh, 4.15. And so, you know, with this one, people aren't inherently sinful. They just haven't awakened to the God that they are. And and a lot of it came out of that is like, uh, you know, some pantheism and um, other doctrines spun out of that, but it didn't hold that man was in need of a savior because in effect that he was inherently uh, had no sin. Now, you and I believe this mystical theory. We believe this idea if we are uh, addressed in our sin and we put up this prideful statement or whatever that says those things don't exist inside of me and we come out with criticism and anger towards other people when we're being addressed over a situation in our life instead of humbling ourselves. Uh, John 3 says that those who are of the light will come to the light so that their deeds may be reproved. A godly man or woman is not afraid of being reproved. They actually are asking for reproof so that they can be uh, brought into relationship with the Lord. And so someone that doesn't see that they have any sin at all, which is a completely unbiblical thing, and it says in, in the Scripture, it says that those that say they have no sin are a liar and the truth is not in them. And so it's it's a lie to say that you're without sin. There's a moral influence theory. This is the belief that the atonement of Christ is a demonstration of God's love which causes man's heart to soften and repent. Those who hold this view believe that man is spiritually sick and in need of help and that man is moved to accept God's forgiveness by seeing God's love for man. They believe that the purpose and meaning of Christ's death was to demonstrate God's love towards man. While it is true that Christ's atonement is an, an ultimate example of the love of God, this view is unbiblical because it denies the true spiritual condition of man, that he is dead in transgressions and sin, Ephesians 2.1, and denies that God actually requires a payment for sin. 
The view of Christ's atonement leaves mankind without a uh, true sacrifice or a, a payment for sin. You know, the, the moral influence theory is so prevalent in our society because it's like you would see that God is so good and you would say, you know, I just want to get things straightened out with him uh, because I see that he has he loves me. And so therefore, I would be moved to accept his forgiveness. And I don't know if you really understand this, but what goes on with this moral influence theory is, is what it's saying is there's something inside of me that would actually choose God. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing inside of you that would actually choose God. You have no reason to want to turn your life over to Him. It's Christ's design to save those whom He will, and He elects those He wants to for salvation. You and I uh, have a depraved nature so that before we are converted, the Lord has to move upon you and give you the grace and the faith for you to actually uh, be turned. Your infectious disease and mind called sin has no proclivity to come under the will of another master. Uh, unless God saves you, there's no hope. Uh, it's, it's really up to him. And the reason why this moral influence theory is so damaging for those who proclaim it is it presupposes that there's something I can do to get God's attention or that I can do something to get him to move towards me. It's damaged so much of the church because people are constantly looking for the so-called silver bullet. If I do this, he will accept me. Or if I do these things in the context of others, socially, I will gain acceptance. Thereby, I'm in relationship with God. And it literally has nothing to do with it. So this, this theory is defunct, and I am in dramatically I disagree with it because what it does is it engenders people to have to respond to us to get our approval because we ourselves are seeing God through a view that if we do certain things we get his approval and our approval is not based off what we do it's based on Jesus's shed blood Uh, we're not approved of based off of how many right or wrong things we do and so moral influence theory is of atonement can, will damage your family if you have that kind of thinking in the, the way that you treat your family members. Example theory, this view sees the atonement of Christ as simply providing an example of faith and obedience to inspire man to be obedient to God. Those who hold this view believe that man is spiritually alive and that Christ's life and atonement were simply an example of true faith and obedience and serve as inspiration to man to live a life of faith and obedience. This and the moral influence theory are similar in that they both deny that God's justice actually requires payment for sin, that Christ's death on the cross was that payment. The main difference between moral influence theory and example theory is that the moral influence theory says Christ's death teaches us how much God loves us, and the example theory says that Christ's death teaches us how to live. Of course, It is true that Christ is an example for us to follow even in his death, but the example theory fails to recognize man's true spiritual condition, that God's justice requires payment for sin, which man is not capable of paying. On this example theory, I really, I fell prey to this a little bit in my beginning days because I had thought that 
example theory would be that the way that my life translated in front of others would endear them towards faith. And that if I became a proper example to them by my own walk, that they too would turn towards him. And uh, I have found that, I remember uh, Kara and I, when we first started out on this journey, and we had, after our first year, we had a, a dramatic example of what faith would would happen when we moved in faith and we got to see it with our own eyes and we thought that the people that were sort of coming against the movement of faith in our life would all of a sudden by seeing our example that they themselves would turn towards the Lord do you know what those people actually said after we had this big breakthrough this is what they basically said to me okay you've done that for a year now go back to living your life the way that you lived it before Okay, it worked, but it didn't. Uh, I was shocked. I thought that our faith journey would endear people to have a faith journey themselves out of our example. But the example theory, the reason why it doesn't work, you have to really get this because much of what is happening in the church, a lot of it's been going on moral influence theory. Like, if you do these things, you'll get approval. And example theory, follow follow the way I do things, and that'll somehow endear you towards to your walk in the Lord. And I, what I've noticed is, I've, I've watched this with my own eyes, that just because uh, there's a proper example being placed in front of others, if their heart's not turned towards the Lord because He has moved on them, they don't necessarily want to live a life of faith themselves anyways. And... Uh, it doesn't necessarily turn them towards the Lord. Why? Because what's going on here is people have to understand their own spiritual condition. Uh, the presupposition behind your movement and my movement of faith, the presupposition that you have to start out with is, I am a man or a woman in need of a Savior. I can't do this on my own. And I've been presupposing that I can. And so the example theory doesn't hold up because it basically allows someone to sort of get off the thing of having to deal with it. I'm in need of a savior. Commercial theory views the atonement of Christ as bringing infinite honor to God. This resulted in God giving Christ a reward which he did not need. And Christ passed that reward on to man. Those who hold this view believe that man's spiritual condition is that of dishonoring God and so Christ's death which brought infinite honor to God can be applied to sinners for salvation. This theory, like many of the others, denies the true spiritual state of unregenerate sinners and their need of a completely new nature, only available only in Christ, and that's 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17. You're, if you go on with the Lord, you're going to realize that this commercial theory doesn't work either because mine and your life cannot just have a focus on from a reward perspective it can't now i know that scripture says that we must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him but you must put that you believe that he is before you put the reward and much of commercial theory is populated the so-called prosperity uh, health and wealth gospel um, and is giving us this idea that Christ gave this infinite honor to the Lord and that it resulted from a reward perspective. But it doesn't deal with our need for a Savior. 
Uh, it doesn't deal with he, that he is. It just deals with that he's a rewarder. And so commercial theory is, does it really get down to it and will not answer the pain of the human heart? Um, I, you know, if, if you've ever offered your children or watched other people do this, they just offer them a reward, but they still don't deal with their conduct. Uh, well, we call those, for the most part, they're called spoiled brats. Uh, and, you know, commercial theory doesn't work in a home. Um, I've tried. You know, that, well, we'll just reward, overly reward you, and that'll somehow help you to um, become more congenial. No, it doesn't. They actually become harder to deal with. And so uh, you don't want to just go around promoting commercial theory uh, because it, that itself does not work either. Governmental theory. This view sees the atonement of Christ as demonstrating God's high regard for his law and his attitude towards sin. It is through Christ's death that God has a reason to forgive the sins of those who repent and accept Christ's substitutionary death. Those who hold this view believe that man's spiritual condition is as one who has violated God's moral law and that the meaning of Christ's death was to substitute for the penalty of sin. Because Christ paid the penalty for sin, it is possible for God to legally forgive those who accept Christ as their substitute. This view falls short in that it does not teach that Christ actually paid the penalty of the actual sins of any people, but instead his suffering simply showed mankind that God's laws were broken and that some penalty was paid. This view is very, I would say this is one of those ones because we're, we're going to be getting in the next one to what I, I hold to and I believe is the best way is the best view on atonement but governmental theory is again that view is falling short because it doesn't teach that Christ actually paid the penalty of actual sins of any people but instead his suffering simply showed mankind that God's laws were broken and that some penalty was paid um, let me let me try to differentiate because I think many Christian families are running their homes off of governmental theory and governmental theory means that at a distance, I'm viewing with you relationally what you have done wrong or what you're doing right, but I'm not going to get in the middle of your chaos. I have some examples like this because I, I didn't realize how deep this was going to have to go into my own family. My, my wife and I have six children. And for years, you know, I can, as an observer, sit back and say, pick that up or straighten that out. Here's what you did wrong, and I want you to make it right. I want you to do what's right and get this straightened out. But I'm sitting back in my chair, or I'm laying in my bed. And governmental theory is, is basically, it sees, it sees the sin, it sees the wrong, it sees the need, it sees spirit, the spiritual condition. It sees that the moral and ethics of the family have been violated. It sees that there needs to be a substitute. But here's the problem with it. It never becomes the substitute. It never goes in to actually literally get in the midst of the problem itself. It doesn't want to be defiled by the chaos that is ensuing around it. So it's, a, it's good at observation, but it's not good at implementation or getting into the situation of the problem. So it's good at telling you what's wrong. 
It's good at telling you what's right, but it doesn't necessarily cost anything because it's just a view of how these moral aspects have been broken. And again, I think many Christian families, and if you've got good blood, this isn't, you know, in your family lines, and you got a genuinely decent people, governmental theory can work in your family. If, if you've got some really broken family members, governmental theory, it, it can work, but what it does is it divides you and separates you from one another because uh, you're not getting in there with the other person. Now, let me try to help you with this because you can see something that is wrong, okay? And what's happening in some families is they see their children or parent parentally or their, the grandparents, they see something that is wrong. And what they do is when they, when they see that it's wrong, many are like, I'm drawing out of the relationship and they just pull back. Some people appease. They say, well, you're doing what's wrong and then they'll just appease you. And then some uh, in the family will just draw away from the relationship because there's a violation. And and what happens is they have to keep pulling themselves out of the family in the way that they relate to it because they either are in appeasement towards the person that is doing wrong, but deep down inside they know that they're not being truthful, or they just back completely out of the relationship because they don't want to communicate. Because this governmental theory is an operation there because it's saying this is wrong and this is right. However, I'm not going to actually get in the middle of it with you. And so you see certain family members separate at this point because, you know, you've burned me out and I can't deal with this anymore and i got to pull away. And I think, I, I think that I'm making my point enough to show you this because um, the governmental theory is not going to take our families where they need to go. And this is why I'm a big... I have a whole this theological position, and I'm watching it how it's shifting my own personal family. And I think that if you really hear this, that this is really a powerful uh, position to get into. And it's called the penal substitution theory. This theory sees the atonement of Christ as being a vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies the demands of God's justice upon sin. With his sacrifice, Christ paid the penalty of man's sin bringing forgiveness and imputing righteousness and reconciling man to God. Those who hold this view believe that every aspect of man, his mind, his will, and his emotions have been corrupted by sin, that man is totally depraved and spiritually dead. This view holds that Christ's death paid the penalty for sin and that through faith man can accept Christ's substitution as payment for sin. This view of the atonement aligns most accurately with Scripture in its view of sin, the nature of man, and the results of the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, I get deeply touched when talking about someone else. Like, I mean, when you've done something wrong and someone else is willing to pay the price for it, I mean, it messes with you. When, you, when you've hurt somebody or you've violated them or let's say you've repeatedly just your sin has violated someone else and they say, you know what, you know, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to cover the charges on this. I don't know how many of you, and I, I surmise that many of you have been betrayed, you know, rejected by other people. 
uh, hurt deeply by other people, especially in the context of family. But when you decide that you want to go be near the person who's hurt you and you say, I forgive you, I'm going to let you go. I'm not even going to let you understand or know my own personal pain. I'm not going to share with you all the times that you've hurt me. I'm I'm going to actually stand in your stead because Christ has stood in mine and taken the responsibility for my wrongdoing. And I'm going to take up charges for you. It's powerfully liberating. I'm finding this out that, and I hold this value. And I I mean, my person, my own will has sort of went totally against this, you know, idea. It's as simple as this, you know, and I, I've learned this with our children. You know, they, I don't like them to walk around with food in their mouth. You know, I'm military trained, and so you don't actually pick up a fork and eat. Not to say that I haven't done this, because I've been guilty too, but you, you don't eat and walk around and talk and food spills out of your mouth, or you carry your plate around, or you carry your muffin around and gets all over the floor. That's sort of like a pet peeve of mine. I, I don't want people to drop food on the floor. And if you do, okay, well then clean up after yourself. Or, hey, flush the toilet or whatever. You know, these are family things. I, all of us have these kind of things. And I remember uh, years ago just dealing with a lot of this in my home. And, you know, and you, and you feel like, man, they just violated my space again. And I, re- I remember the Lord speaking to me and he said, you know, I don't, I don't want you just to sit there and tell them what they've done. I don't mind you talking to them about it, but if you're getting a bad attitude, I don't want you to say anything. I want you to go get your broom, and I want you to sweep up after them. And I'm like, but the kids should know what to do. And he's like, well, which one is better, that you get aggravated with them and you transmit something that pushes them away, which I call governmental theory, or that you take the penalty, you take the responsibility and substitute your life in their place to model for them how I love. Because you can be governmentally proper in your home and yet miss the whole dynamic of love and the transmission of love in your home. And I, violation after violation, because, you know, six kids now under the age of 15 years of age just constantly violating our home. My wife and I's principles were in a small environment. And this is my story, but I've surmised that you guys are dealing with these same kind of things in your homes. Someone's made a violation. They, uh, they didn't honor your time. You know, some of you are very particular about time. And they, they overran your time constraints. Uh, and you get tensed up, you know, and you get triggered. And I want to j- challenge you as we get ready to close out this first third of this episode. I want to challenge you to see that these aspects of, of atonement and come into agreement with penal substitutionary atonement. I want you to see your own sin in need of a Savior. I want you to understand that you are probably motivated by and have been motivated by pride, which is either a left-based fear, a false humility, or you've been domineering and angry, and you get upset when something comes into your environment that causes you to have to to actually lose your life. And I, I want to challenge you to, it may not be extrinsic for you, it may be intrinsic. You may not be, your issues may not be being upheld by the other party. They may not even see you or admire what you've done for them. They may not even notice you. Uh, you may be, feel like you're left out. You may 
be dealing with that. They, they may not see or value the way that you treat them. Um, however, no matter what, whether it's an intrinsic ideology or it's an entr- extrinsic, like I'm mentioning, where your environment is being affected, the Lord has paid this price for us. And when we model for others, I'm going to, I see what you've done. And it's bothering me. But I'm, I'm not going to choose to get after you on it. I'm going to choose to lay my life down here and take up my responsibility to love you. That penal substitutionary atonement literally brings us together as families. Governmental theory will never bring us together. It is, it's moral covenant, and we need a new covenant life that's happening where we're looking for ways. How can I be a blessing for you. I, you did me wrong. I'll take the penalty. I, I used to work uh, with a guy back when I was in my early 20s, and he really liked, really struck me. He had just, his wife had left him. He was, he was with a couple small children. He's, he's working really hard, and his name was um, Pete Slater. And Pete, I worked all night on uh, F-15 Strike Eagle, and I guess I was 19 maybe to 20 years old, and and then during the day, I would go build houses, and I was going to college. I wasn't sleeping much. I guess I just really wanted to work, you know. And um, and I, I remember we were building this house in Goldsboro, and something went wrong on on uh, the building, and it needed to be tore back out and replaced. And one of the guys had done the work wrong, and uh, the guy, my foreman that I worked for, he was a good man, but he said, you know, hey, what happened here? And uh, Pete, he goes up and sort of puts himself out there, and he says something to the effect that it doesn't matter what just happened. I'll take responsibility for it. And he, he was always doing this. He was always like someone did something wrong, and he would go take responsibility for it. And I remember just being, like, so struck by that. He, he didn't point out the fault of, the other party, he just said, everybody makes mistakes, whatever, I'll take responsibility for it, and he'd go and fix it. He really modeled for me in my, you know, 19, 20 years old, he modeled for me this substitution that someone else is going to stand in my stead to take up charges for something I've done wrong. Uh, I've violated somebody's consciousness, I've violated someone, I've, I've created chaos for someone else, I've created a conflict for somebody else I've done something wrong and and Pete would he said I'm easy to get along with it you know I'll take responsibility and I, I really think that this kind of model and and I I would implore you to dig deep into penal substitutionary atonement uh, so and we're going to take a break now and then I'm going to come back with a biblical narrative of how this was happening in the life of Jacob and his family hello my name is Henry We want to take this time to give you a break and consider the content and weigh what you've just heard. We also want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and for those of you who are supporting this ministry both prayerfully and financially. If you have not, take the time to listen to the Collider Vision and Mission episode. We invite you to email us at info at doublemz.org for questions and suggestions. And if you are led to, give at paypal.me forward slash mzhop. Now, let us return to the episode in session.
right, let's jump into this. Working off of the off the previous section that we just came out of, I want to start out by getting into giving a couple definitions to lay the groundwork uh, for this episode for our discussion. The two words we're going to work off of to start out with are uh, mediation or a mediator and or a guarantor. Mediation is a dynamic, uh, structured, it's an interactive process where a neutral third party assists disputing parties in resolving a conflict. They use specialized communication and negotiation techniques. Um, participants in a mediation are encouraged to actively participate in the process. Mediation is party-centered process in that it is focused primarily upon the needs, rights, and interests of the parties. A mediator can use a wide variety of techniques to guide the process in a constructive direction and to help the parties find their optimal solution. Mediator is facilitates and uh, manages an interaction between parties to get open communication. Mediation, as is used in law, is a form of dispute resolution and resolving disputes between two or more parties with concrete effects. Mediation, as used in law, is a form of alternative dispute resolution resolving disputes between two or more parties with concrete effects. Typically, a third party, the mediator, assists the parties to negotiate a settlement, and disputes may mediate disputes in a variety of domains such as commercial, legal, diplomatic, workplace, community, and family matters. Also wanted to go through a uh, definition of a a guarantor. What is a guarantor? Um, A guarantor is a person who guarantees to pay a borrower's debt in the event the borrower defaults on a loan obligation. A guarantor acts as a cosigner because they pledge their own assets or services in case the original debtor cannot perform their obligations. A guarantor is also someone who certifies the true likeness of an individual applying for a product or a service. A guarantor is also known as a surety. Usually guarantors are over the age of 18. They're a resident of the country in which they make a payment agreement. Uh, They're expected to have a good credit history, sufficient income to cover the loan payments if the need arises. And once a guarantor enters an agreement, the contract will remain binding until the end of a repayment uh, period. And so uh, sometimes it's necessary to secure a guarantor if uh, a borrower cannot demonstrate that their debt will be paid or the identity of a person uh, may require uh, verification. First of all, I think you can probably see uh, that there's a difference between someone who mediates or becomes a mediator between two, you know, like two parties, and then what it means to be a guarantor. A guarantor being someone who comes in and steps in in between a situation uh, and says, I will take up responsibility for it. With mediation, much of it is self-motivated by one of the other parties, but with a guarantor, uh, there's an action that's taking place that is more substitutionary. Uh, in mediation, it may be like involving, I'm just using some language here to kind of help us as we launch out here. It may involve like a, a sign or a shadow of something, but in, in being a guarantor, it requires the substance of a person. 
Um, in mediation, it may be legal, but with a guarantor, it's based in grace. In mediation, it may involve the law, but in, in substitution, it has to require faith. Uh, in mediation, there may be wrath involved, but with a guarantor, it requires love. In mediation, it may be for your immediate family, but with a guarantor, it's the substitution of your entire family. The point that I'm wanting to get out here to start out with when you know we're picking up off penal substitutionary atonement is that substitution that is based in love and faith and grace or your person or your own future it has a higher principle than, let's say, something that is legal, law-based, based in wrath, or is in, in a sign-based way. One is tremendously, in guarantor work, it is substitution, but with mediation, it may be self-motivated. And I'm not necessarily speaking about the mediator themselves, but I'm talking about the two parties that come into conflict that are attempting to resolve a conflict or resolution. I wanted to jump into a couple passages in Scripture where this is uh, seen so poignantly with Judah. Now, Judah was the fourth son of Leah. He is the recipient or is going to be the recipient of something special that was given to him by his, by his father. Just a little backstory: Reuben, who was the firstborn son who would receive a double inheritance, from his father was to receive an inheritance of what we would call scepter and birthright. And with the scepter came authority and kingship, but with the birthright would come expansion like a blessing, financial blessing, and prosperity. Reuben had went and committed an act of immorality with his dad's concubine. And it, it says that he went up on the couch of his dad and slept with his dad's concubine or his uh, mistress. And because Reuben had done that, Jacob, his dad, is going to take away what was normally Reuben's double inheritance and give it to Judah and Joseph. And so Judah is going to receive the scepter, and Joseph is going to receive the birthright. But, you know, as as it is with any any of us, even though we may have received a, a blessing from the Lord, and, you know, in this case, Judah receiving this scepter, which was for him to govern and, you know, for kings to come out from him. And, and of course, I think you probably know this, that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And so, you know, down the line, the word is going to come through uh, Judah's offspring. But Judah's got to become the man that, that he's meant to be. Even though his dad has given him this scepter, he has to learn how to use it. So Judah in Genesis 38, we're going to see two different types of Judah. And I want to, you know, really just kind of lay this out because we're going to see Judah more in a mediatorial role. And then later on, we're going to see him as guarantor. And he's going to finally, you know, in a way become the man he is meant to be. He's going to model and embody the value that we were talking about in those seven aspects of atonement. And so let's just read in Genesis 38. At that time, Judah withdrew from his brothers and went to lodge with a certain Adolamite named Hurrah. Now, this may be something that you are already, you know, considering in the text because later on, David's going to come out of this line 
as a, a king, and he also is going to go to Adullam. Uh, this is kind of like a cave-dwelling kind of environment. It's, it's not a nice uh, place to hang out, and Judah's going to depart from his brothers and go and live in, in an area of Adullam. And so Judah saw and he met a daughter of Shua, a Canaanite, and he took her as his wife and he lived with her. And she became pregnant and bore a son and called him heir. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't know that I'd want to call my son heir. But I guess being married to this woman, uh, that's what he ended up calling her. And so she conceives again, he bears a son and names him Onan. And again, she conceived and bore a son and named him uh, Shelah. They were living at Shezeb when she bore him. Now, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Then Judah told Onan, marry your brother's widow, live with her, and raise offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the family would not be his. So when he cohabited with his brother's widow, he prevented conception, lest he should raise up a child uh, for his brother. Now, the situation here is is that, and then later on this is going to come out in the Mosaic Law, Judah was already instructing his uh, son in what's called Levirate marriage. And, and what had to happen with that is if, in this case, Tamar, she would be left as a widow. And so what God will later on institute through the Mosaic Law is that a young widowed lady like that needed to, uh, that hadn't had a son, would be given the opportunity to, because she would be left outside of the community uh, and she wouldn't have any way to take care of herself. And so Judah wanted to make sure that his son Onan would give seed to Tamar so that she could conceive a, a son. Now, the interesting thing, though, is is that the inheritance would have to go to that child. And so Onan didn't want to do that because he would end up not having the inheritance because this was heir, the firstborn. And then heir's son, which is would have been a firstborn son, would have to, the inheritance would have to go to the firstborn grandson. And so Onan didn't want to do that because he was in line now to actually have the inheritance. And again, by having to take Tamar as his wife and then have a son, it would be Judah's grandson that would receive the inheritance, not Onan. And so Onan didn't want to do what was right in in the way towards the widow. Basically, he was very selfish in that way and didn't want to uh, take care of, of her. And so what he did also displeased the Lord and the Lord slew him. And now in the case, both of these cases, you know, these two boys, Aaron and Onan, they're already acting in a way that is, they have a proclivity towards their self, um, not even wanting to stand in, t- in, in a role that is proper. And um, we don't know the way necessarily Judah was raising them or what kind of uh, woman uh, that he had married, but it seems obvious that they were being raised in a household that didn't ha- give them a nature of wanting to lay their life down for someone else. And so both of these sons were slew by the Lord or, or he killed them. So Judah uh, said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at your father's house till Sheila, my youngest son, is grown. For he thought, well, if Sheila could marry her, 
he would die also, as his brothers did. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, again, what Judah's doing is he's basically trying to um, say, you know, go let your, your daddy take care of you until my youngest son that was just born, I think he, she's going to have to wait, you know, I think it's approximately 14 years from this point to marry uh, this boy, Sheila. And he was concerned that, and I think Judah was concerned that he's going to lose his third son. And so he's, I think he's trying to put Tamar off and tell her, go live with your dad and probably is in hopes that her dad will take up her expenses and that she'll just sort of forget about the whole thing. So later on, it says in verse 12, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnath and with his friend Harah the Dolomite. And then it was told Tamar, listen, your father-in-law is going up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And basically, you're probably looking at uh, Judah being... A little bit more advanced in age. Uh, he has his business. It looks like he's shearing sheep, probably selling the wool. He's went back to revisit this environment in Adullam uh, with his friend, and he's probably had some time to grieve. He's lost, you know, you have to imagine the man has lost uh, two of his sons. One of his sons is growing up. Um, he's lost his wife now, so he's uh, a widower. And he's going to do, I guess, what like men would do. He's going to engage in his work. Uh, he's going back to this environment. And so Tamar hears about this. And so she puts off her uh, widow's garments and covers herself with a veil, wraps herself up in a disguise and set at the entrance of Inane, which is by the road to Timnoth, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as his wife. Judah again has lost three significant people in his life he probably fears that Sheila will also be lost probably sees Tamar as some kind of uh, that she's plagued and it's going to cause him problems and so he's choosing again to not honor his word and so we see this example that laid out in the way that he is leading his life he's, he's not being a man of his word and so Judah sees her and he thought she was a harlot or a devoted prostitute under a vow to her goddess for she had covered her face as such women did. And he turned to her by the road and said, Come, let me have intercourse with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may have intercourse with me? And he answered, I'll give you a kid from my flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge or a deposit until you send it? And so basically... Judah's willing to pledge a sheep to have intercourse with Tamar. Um, but she's she's kind of smart. Tamar is, you know, not foolish here. She's saying, I need a pledge. And he said, well, what pledge should I give you? And she says, your signet ring, your signet cord, and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and came into her, and she became pregnant by him. And she arose and went away, laid aside her veil, and put on garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Dolomite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he was unable to find her. 
And he asked the men of that place, where is the harlot or cult prostitute who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot or temple prostitute here. So he turned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the local men said, there was no harlot or temple prostitute around here. And Judah said, let her keep the pledge articles for herself, lest we be made ashamed. I sent this kid, but you have not found her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and also she is with child by, your, by her lewdness. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burned. And when she was brought forth, she took the things he had given her in pledge and sent them to their father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these articles belong. And then she added, Make out clearly, I pray you, to whom these belong, the signet, the ring, the signet cord and the staff and Judah acknowledged them and said she has been more righteous and just than I because I did not give her to Sheila my son and he did not cohabit with her again now when the time came for her to be delivered behold there came twins in her womb and when she was in labor one baby put out his hand and the midwife took his hand and bound upon a scarlet thread saying this baby was born first And he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother was born first. And she said, What a breaking forth you have made for yourself, therefore your name will be called Perez. And afterward, his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, was born and was named Zerah, which means scarlet. Now, you know, this is like a R-rated story, you know, here, right in in the Word of God. And... Uh, but it's very much of interest to this episode today because we've got to see this backstory on Judah to understand what's going to happen later on and what kind of man that he was. You know, again, he's a grieving man, he, and he's also he's lost his two sons, he's lost his wife, and he probably wants to be comforted, and he's um, he's a dishonest man. He's not he's not walking in integrity. And so he, again, he finds this uh, a woman uh, that he doesn't realize is his daughter-in-law. Tamar's a pretty, I would say, very sharp person. And it's perceived uh, that the only way that she's going to be able to be taken into a condition where this word is going to be honored and taken care of is she's going to have to uh, find someone who's going to give her the seed that she needs to bring forth children. And so one of the things that is I think is very profound in this first off is that Judah well first of all he's going to commit an immoral act and that's wrong I just want to say that it's wrong second of all uh, he has a, possibly a very low view of, of women uh, he doesn't seem to really care about ladies or treating them well third he apparently is very pretentious and uh, cares only about what he sees. If, if he likes something that's good looking, he's willing to go for it. Fourth, and, and this is probably the most surprising thing to me, is when this pledge language is starting to be introduced here, uh, and, and Judah is basically de- definitely seeking his own pleasure, he, but he's willing to give up something that is, that is very important. And Judah is endowed with these... Um, these three items one is a signet ring and the other one is a a rope and the other one is a staff now 
I don't know if you've ever heard anybody speak about this, but I, I hadn't really heard anybody actually in my years of being in the church, I guess since I was a week old, really talk about the ring, the rod, and the rope. But I just want to take just a little bit here to just discuss these three items. Uh, you're probably, you've probably like watched TV and seen when a royal, a lot of times when they sent, would send mail or what we call snail mail, they probably do this today. When they make a letter, they'll normally take wax, like a red wax, and I think this happens even within the papacy today, but they'll take red wax and they'll, they'll let it drip on the, you know, where the letter comes together. They'll drip it, and then they'll take a, a ring that's in their, on their hand, and they'll stick the seal. And some people have these seals in little metal devices with the seal, their family crest or seal, and they'll stick that seal into uh, that wax, and then they'll let it cool. And so that when you look at that, seal you know that it that first of all it comes from such as such a person and that that seal can't be broken that means the content or material that's inside of there no one else can read it and before it was in our nation we have i mean you can get in a lot of trouble for committing uh, what's called mail fraud you know today you go up in someone else's mailbox and dig into it um you know, you go to jail for that or, and get fined heavily. And for those of you that worked within the Postal Service or understand the Postal Service, that's a really a blessing that's on our nation because that that's a fraud and, you know, uh, wrong to do that to someone else to break into their private letters or something that they wrote. And so when we want to send something or a piece of something that we've wrote and we want to keep it private, we have to seal it. And Judah was endowed with the ability to seal things or contents or uh, create exchanges that had a sensitivity related to them, meaning that the material would be classified or secret, that he could declare something or decree something that had to be protected. He has this kind of mark on him, and that ring was carried around the rope. It was like a, a braided rope that went around his neck. Meaning that the only way you're going to get this ring from Judah is you're going to basically, he would have to take it off his own neck or you'd have to take his life. And so this braided rope represented covenant, meaning that Judah had the right, that this is what he had been endowed with, to cut covenant or cut contracts or agreements by sealing them, saying that, he would keep his word, or that the contents were clearly contractual. Judah is a law giver, it says in Genesis 49. He's a contract maker. He makes deals and he makes arrangements. Now, he also had the right to enforce any contract that he made, meaning that within Judah, he not just could make the the seal on the document, uh, protect the document, or he could also protect the document, meaning that he had the right to enforce it. So today, the way we enforce law is we have various different departments of security. We have different department, police departments, uh, sheriff's department. Well, Judah was like basically had all that within himself. He had the ring, like he had the intel side. He had the right to make contract, and he had the right to enforce the contract. 
So let's say that someone didn't keep their end of the bargain. Judah's staff was for the purpose of, or the rod was for the purpose of enforcement. You don't keep your end of the bargain, I'm going to help you to understand. Uh, I'll come and use my rod on you. And so he was, all of those combined, he was really in a way, he was both, and this is very uncommon today because we have these three branches broke up the executive, the legislator, and the judicial branch broke up into three different components. Judah had all three of those endowed within himself as king. So we may have trouble with that in our democratic society, but when God made a king, he made them where they would have power, executive power, okay, that would be the seal. Legislative power, the contents and material of that letter, and also judicial power. He had the power to enact and enforce law. And so he had all of those combined within himself. So here you have this man. In his loins will be David will come out of, and of course the Lord will come out of. He has this kind of level of power with his scepter, his, his right to govern in himself. And look what he's willing to do. Now, I hope that you're really seeing, really for a quick fix, to satisfy his need sexually, Judah's willing to give up his judicial power, his executive power, and his legislative power. He's willing to basically give up his whole kingship because he likes a good-looking girl. And he likes the feeling that he's going to get from it. And he certainly doesn't care about paying out much for it either because he's only willing to give up a sheep. So you can imagine that this kind of way of Judah is is not very becoming for a king. And I don't know if you're starting to say, well, that's that's why we don't want a monarchy. (laughs) This guy is quintessentially why we have fled uh, monarchy. Uh, because uh, a monarch like this would damage an entire nation. See, this is the this is the kind of things that have spoiled monarchy. They've spoiled kingship. Judah is basically exhibiting, you know, a nature that is motivated purely by his own desire. He's not doing something that is substitutionary. He's not doing something that is based in love or based in trust or a grace. He's acting in a legal way. Uh, he's willing, again, to, to give up his whole, let's just call it a J-E-L, his judicial governing aspect, his executive aspect, and his, and his legislative aspect. You know, the ring, the rod, and the rope. You know, just for one uh, pick-me-up. And this has plagued our culture. It's plagued our society. This is, you know, this is happening and has been rampant, and I'm sure that you've seen many things like this in the news, uh, even from different administrations and, and back. And so now, just a little bit after this, you know, after this happens, of course, nine months later, Judah, basically his new sons, he's going to have twins, and their names are uh, Perez and Zerah. Now, Jesus' line comes out of Perez, and it's very interesting if you look deeper into uh, Zerah's bloodline and, and how that follows. Uh, you know, for this, actually for this episode, I'm not going to get into Zerah's bloodline, but it's, very, it's a very interesting 
journey that Zara's bloodline will take. And there's a man by the name, I believe, of J.H. Allen, and he did a he did a write-up, uh, extensive write-up on Zara, and it's called uh, The Scepter and the Birthright. And I just want to commend it to you. I'll put it in the notes, you know, and it'll be in the book also to, to kind of give a background on this so that you can uh, dig deeper into it if you want to. Now, what's, you know, phenomenal about Judah is later on he's going to, I mean, he's he's going to go to, through a transformation. And, you know, one thing that I just, you know, I want to clearly say about this is because when we see someone act in a way that is, you know, unbecoming uh, of themselves, you know, a lot of people, they, they basically peg somebody for the rest of their life when they do something that they shouldn't do. And we kind of hold them in our minds to they're never going to get any better than the way that they've always been. And one of the beautiful things about the word's redemption is that the word permits things that he doesn't allow. I mean, in this case, you know, you think about this, the word's going to design uh, not Judah's sin and Tamar, what they did wrong sinfully, but he's going to use this situation for his own glory because, again, Perez is the bloodline that Jesus comes from. And there's going to be some real questionable figures that come before uh, the Lord is born. And so I just want to highlight the fact that although right now we're viewing into something that is is not respectable and not right, that God can, God knows how to make a king. And the Lord knows what to do, and he knows how to reinstate Judah. But Judah is going to have to go through some things. And so there's a time period that transpires between uh, this Genesis 38 account and the account that I want to pick up on now that happens later. As you know, and many of you know, there's going to be, there's a little brother that's going to be born, not from Leah's side, but from Rachel. Jacob, you know, has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then there was two mistresses or concubines that give birth to the children. But later on, there's going to be uh, Rachel is going to have two children, one by the name of Joseph and the other by the name of Benjamin. Now, remember, I I told you before that Reuben is going to lose, for his immoral act, he's going to lose both the scepter and the birthright. And so the scepter will go to Judah and the birthright will go to Joseph. And so when Joseph comes on the line, and I'm not going to go through the whole story of Joseph, but Joseph finds out that he's... uh, has a dream and uh, basically he sees that all of his brothers are going to bow down to him Uh, his dad makes him a coat of many colors because he's joseph is going to represent uh familially or within the family he's going to end up being a representative by ephraim his oldest son or second oldest son is going to represent 10 of the brothers and Joseph, not knowing that in advance, though, has this dream and sees himself where all his brothers are bowing down to him. And uh, and he's favored very much by his dad because his dad ends up being able, Jacob ends up being able to have uh, a child by, by Rachel. And so Joseph is really like this very special kid in the family. And I don't know if, if you've ever been with a family or it's happened in your family, but if your dad was to, let's say, favor one of the children over the other, it can create a lot of jealousy 
and problems within your own family structure. And this was happening in Jacob's family, excuse me. And so this special little guy now that's had this vision that all the older brothers are going to bow down to him, everybody don't take that too well. And so they, uh, they end up, you know, taking him. They want to kill him. They don't. They throw him into a pit. He's picked up by some Ishmaelites and carried off and placed into slavery. Some time transpires, and, and the family, Jacob's family, goes through this time of starvation and hunger because the Lord had set this whole situation up. I, I suppose this is, uh, by this time, it's been approximately since Joseph was thrown into the pit and carried off by the Ishmaelites. His period of time was about, I think it was approximately around 14 years of slavery before Joseph is going to become like second in command in Egypt to Pharaoh himself. And that is an amazing story to read. But what I want to get in today is we're going to move into another view of Judah and what he's going to do in uh, Genesis 43. Now, it says the hunger and destitution and starvation were very severe and extremely distressing in the land of Canaan. When the families of Jacob's sons had eaten up the grain which the men had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, This man, and this is speaking of the man that they had bought grain from, was Joseph. He solemnly and sternly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Now, the brother that they that he's speaking of is his Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was also born to Rachel, and Benjamin would be Joseph's direct blood. And so uh, when they had went down there earlier to get the food like maybe older brothers would and get the grain, their daddy, you know, didn't want Benjamin to go because he's, uh, you know, he's afraid of losing him like he lost Joseph. So, but Joseph makes this demand when he gives them the grain. He says, if you, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down to, to uh, Egypt and buy you food. Because Joseph had put a warning on them, do not come and visit me again unless you bring your little brother. If you do not send him, though, it says in verse 5, we will not, Judah saying to them, if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, now Israel is Jacob's name because his name was changed. This was back in uh, the account in Genesis 32. And there's a later account, I believe, in Genesis 35 where Jacob will have a name changed to Israel. Israel means as a prince, you have wrestled with God and man and have prevailed. That's what God said about him when he wrestled with him. Israel said, why do you do me such a wrong and suffer this evil to come upon me by telling me, the man that that you had another brother, and uh, why'd you tell him about Benjamin? If you wouldn't have told him, we, you know, I wouldn't be upset about this. And they said the man asked us straightforward questions about ourselves and our relatives. He said, "Is your father still alive?" This is Joseph speaking, uh, saying this, and Judah's recounting it. Have you another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How can we know what he would say? Bring your brother down here. I don't know if you hear here that Judah has become a man of integrity, apparently, because he didn't lie about his little brother to Joseph. So he tells him the truth. And and Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go. 
that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a security for him. You shall require him of me personally. If I do not bring him back to you and put him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered like this, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father said to them, If it must be so, now do this. Take the choicest products in the land in your sacks and carry down a present to the man, a little balm or blossom, a little honey, aromatic spices and gum of rock rose or ladadium, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the grain money with you and the money that was put back in the mouth of your sacks. Carry it again with you. There is a possibility that its being in your sacks was an oversight. Take your brother and arise and return to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy and favor before the man that he may release to you your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved in my sons, I am bereaved. Now, because Joseph was holding Simeon, down there which is earlier on in the story he was retaining him so that they would have to bring back benjamin then the men took the present they took double the grain money with them and benjamin they arose and went down to egypt and stood before joseph and when joseph saw benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house bring the man into the house and kill an animal and make ready for the men will dine with me at noon And the man did as Joseph ordered and brought the men to Joseph's house. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, We are brought in because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time we came, so that he might find occasion to accuse and assail us and take us for slaves and seize our donkeys. So they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we came down truly the first time to buy food. And when we came to the inn, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money, full weight, returned in the mouth of his sack. Now we brought it back again. We brought down with us other money to buy food. We do not know who put this money in our sacks. But the steward said, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your money, and he brought Simeon out to them. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, And they washed their feet and gave their donkeys provender. And they made ready the present they had brought for Joseph before his coming at noon, for they heard that they were to dine there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which they had with them and bowed themselves to him to the ground. Now, you know, here's this picture that he had seen, Joseph had seen, you know, some 14 years before this, that his brothers would bow down to him. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he looked up and saw his full brother Benjamin, his mother's only other son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother, of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried from the room, for his heart yearned for his brother. And he sought privacy to weep. So he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out, and restraining himself, said, Let the dinner be served. And the servant set the food for Joseph by himself, and for his brothers by themselves, and for those Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, according to the Egyptian custom not to eat food 
with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph's brothers were given seats before him, the eldest according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another amazed that such had been known about them. Joseph took and sent helpings to them from before him, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. And they drank freely and were merry with them. And so he goes on, he said, he commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put every man's money back in his sack's mouth and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest with his grain money. The steward did so according to what Joseph had said. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away and their donkeys. And they had left the city and were not yet far away. Joseph said to the steward, up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you rewarded my evil for good? Why have you stolen the silver cup? Is it not my master's drinking cup, which he divines the future? You have done wrong in doing this. The steward overtook them, and he said to them the same words, and said to him, Why does my Lord say these things? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Note that the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan It is likely then that we, why would we steal from your master's house silver or gold? With whomever of your servants your master's cup is found, not only let that one die, but the rest of us will be the Lord's slaves. And the steward said, Now let it be as you say, Him with whom the cup is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be blameless. Quickly every man lowered his sack to the ground, every man opened his sack. Steward searched, beginning with the eldest, stopping with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They rent their clothes. Each man loaded his donkey again. They returned to the city. And Judah and the brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was still there. And they fell prostrate before him. Joseph said to them, What is this thing that you have done? Do you not realize that such a man as I can certainly detect and know by divination everything you do without knowledge of it? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we reply, or how shall we clear ourselves, since God has found out and exposed the iniquity of your servants? Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, the rest of us as well as with whom the cup is found. And Joseph said, God forbid that I should do that. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for the rest of you, arise, go in peace to your father. Then Judah came close to Joseph and said, O my Lord, let your servant, I pray you, speak a word to you in private, and let not your anger blaze against your servant, for you are as Pharaoh, so I will speak as if directly to him. And the Lord asked the servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's offspring, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to the Lord, To my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should do so, his father would die. And you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes with you, you shall not see my face again. And we went back to your servant, my father. We told him, what my Lord had said, and our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down. 
For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that Rachel, my wife, bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. And if you take this son also from me, and harm or accident should befall him, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow and evil to Sheol, the place of the dead. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, and his soul knit with his lad's soul, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die, and your servants will be responsible for his death, and will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, for your servant became security. Now, here, Judah, this is this is what I want you to see. Um, Judah is saying, I, I became security or a pledge for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him to you, then I will bear the blame to my father forever. Now, therefore, I pray you, let your servant remain instead of the youth to be the slave to my Lord and to let the young man go home with his half-brothers. For how can I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I witness the woe and the evil that that will come upon my father? Now, you have to understand what Judah's doing here. He's, He's a changed man. Judah's not the man that he was, uh, you know, years ago with Tamar. He's he's basically what he's done. And, you know, his older brother, Reuben, before they go on this journey, Reuben makes this kind of appeal to his dad that he would uh, he would actually send his own two sons to be slaves. That Reuben wasn't the kind of man that would take care of his family. Uh, Reuben kind of puts it off on his own two sons and and he tells Jacob, you know, I'll allow my own sons to be surety for Benjamin. And, um, and of course, Jacob basically, as any dad would, that if his son said, I'll let your grandson stand in my stead, that a, a grandfather would be, what kind of man are you to act in such a way? And because Reuben was an, un- it says that he was unstable as water and that uh, his instability. But you see this real t- remarkable change in Judah as this storyline has developed. And you've, you've really got to understand this, that Judah, he has, you know, his two sons. Uh, you know, he has Tamar. You know, he's had uh, he's done things that he shouldn't do, but he has his own family to take care of. And Judah is basically saying, I'll take up I will allow myself to go into slavery for my little brother. Uh, I will uh, take up responsibility for Benjamin. Daddy, I'll take the responsibility for it. What he says is, I will make myself a surety or a pledge. And this is the same language that was used earlier on when with Tamar years before this, where he was also making a pledge by giving up these things. Um He's saying that on behalf of my little brother, I'm willing to put myself on the line for him. And what I really want you to see uh, as we come to the close of this this next section of this, before I get into my own personal narrative, and the remaining part is the power of penal substitutionary atonement. 
to substitute oneself in the stead of another. And that this is going to be epitomized in the Lord on the cross when he lays his life down for all of us. And Judah has to learn this as because a kingship is never safe. It never is safe, you know, uh, because of the power that's given to it unless it's first willing to substitute and lay uh, his life down. Um, and also you see not just the substitution, but you see a consummate integrity. Judah goes in privately. He he doesn't do this in front of his all of his brothers. So, you know, something else you may notice is, is that his giving of his own life is done in private. He's not making a big scene here in front of everybody. He's wanting to work out an arrangement with his brother um, because what's going to happen here you know with the Lord and the way the Lord's looking at it he's going to bring the scepter and the birthright together through two men both of which Judah and Joseph who have learned through the process and development uh, for Joseph being in prison and learning his administrative gift and for Judah going through his own trials related to his own acts they finally become the kind of men who are willing to uh, lay their lives down for others and, and men that can be trusted. And when we look at right here in the story, Genesis 45, 1, look what happens. Then Joseph cannot restrain himself any longer before all those who stood by him. And he called out, cause every man to go out from me so that no one stood there with Joseph while he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept and uh, sobbed aloud. And the Egyptians who had just left heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers could not reply, for they were distressingly disturbed and dismayed. The startling realization that they were in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they did so. And he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Hello, my name is Henry. We want to take this time to give you a break and consider the content and weigh what you've just heard. We also want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and for those of you who are supporting this ministry both prayerfully and financially. If you have not, take the time to listen to the Collider Vision and Mission episode. We invite you to email us at info at org for questions and suggestions. And if you are led to, give at paypal.me forward slash mzhop. Now, let us return to the episode in session. Coming back to it and picking back up out of this storyline, you can see that earlier on with Judah, he had acted in a mediatorial role with Tamar. Really, he had broken the agreement between uh, Tamar and what he had said about Sheila. And in his mediation, it had broke down. And, of course, we understand what took place from that. But later on in chapter 43, when we start to get into this narrative about Judah becoming surety and saying, you know, I'm going to secure this on my own life. We start to see a different man. 
um, a man who is, I believe, being prepared to receive back the, the, you know, his judicial aspect, his executive aspect, and his legislative, someone who has been internally re-transformed. He doesn't just have the implements of ring, rod, and rope, but now he is a, he is a changed man, and he has embodied the value of releasing his family into blessing. You know, what's going to happen is because of this revelation that's going to come forth that Joseph is truly his brother, uh, out of this revelation, Israel and the entire family is going to be taken into the land of Goshen where they're going to be able to be blessed and prosper and do well. You know, they're going to come out of famine. And so their, you know, their financial picture is going to shift tremendously. But in other passages of the Pentateuch, it it says that Judah must go up first. And as a king, he had to model for the entire family the life of substitution, that he would go in place of everyone else, that the other brothers in the family, not Joseph, but the other brothers in the family were going to have to see uh, what true kingship looked like and that he was willing to lay his life down, you know, Earlier on in chapter 38, he was motivated by self. But in 43, he will become one who is built on substitution. In both 38 and 43, we see God's purpose, that God's purpose was still fulfilled. And and in 38, that Perez needed to come forth, including Zerah, but Perez needed to come forth because Jesus is going to end up coming out of his line. Uh, both of them in both sections of 38 and 43 is just comparing and contrasting them that they both required a surety meaning a pledge still had to take place and in one the pledge in 38 it's the ring the rod and the rope which were outward implements but in 43 it's Judah's own life he the way he's looking at it he's going to be in slavery for the rest of his life and he's also affecting his own family's future. He's putting out what could be a blessing as a man for his family. He's saying, I'm going to become a slave for the rest of my life. What's going to happen to Tamar and his children? You know, I mean, how are they going to be taken care of? This is really an important feature of what Judah did because he's going to put off um, his immediate family for someone else's family. I think if you if you start to get like a view of Romans 9 through 11, you might start to see kind of the same kind of picture with Jesus being uh, a Judean king who is in Israel that uh, you're going to see this where the Jews are set aside and then this Gentiles are brought in and that Jesus is allowing this uh, expanded family to happen through there being this time or season that Paul t- talks about of them being set set aside for a greater family because it is was the Father's intention for many of us to be a part of a greater expanded family that Judah's already starting to model this in advance. My immediate needs in my immediate family are, it looks and appears like, are, are going to be set aside for this greater and bigger picture a family, which is what makes a king safe, as he has to see the bigger picture uh, with all the other families that are involved. Um, in 38, you see a sign or a shadow, but in 43, and this is spoke of in Colossians, you see the substance or a person. 
And it's one thing to, you know, we've heard this language before, talk is cheap, you know, or put your money where your mouth is. This kind of process, you know, you know we can talk about things, outward things like signs and, and uh, different components in our life, like that ring, rod, and rope. But that ring, rod, and rope is not really effective until the person interiorly has changed. And so, Judah, the substance has to manifest itself in the person. And so in this 43, he's willing to put his own person. It's very substantial on the line. In 38, I think you see a legal transaction. I'll give you a sheep. She says, I'll, you give me these things as a pledge. I'll give you intercourse if you give me this sheep, but I need some uh, surety. You see a legal relationship. But in 43, you see the beauty of grace. Now, in 38, it's based in the law. But in 43, there's faith. There has to be based in the faith and, and the goodness of really a father uh, and Joseph, you know, and himself. In 38, you see wrath uh, involved. Uh, Judah says, you know, because you've done this sin and, and made yourself a prostitute, you should be burned. Of course, when he finds out he's the one who's committed the act, he doesn't seem to think the same thing about himself anymore and he's going to let her off but in 43 you see real love you see i care more about my daddy's uh his gray hair is falling i I care about him so much that i don't want to see him mourn the loss of a second son um that i i'm willing to uh place myself in slavery for that cause that's that's real love in 38 again you see that it's for uh, Judah's uh, really his own desire, which involves his immediate family, and um, but in forty three you see substitution that involves the whole family. Is not just thinking about his own relationship and his own thing that he's getting and his own children, but he's you know thinking about Sheila and trying to protect his son from. Tamar sort of plague that's on her but you see that he's willing to not just substitute for uh, his immediate family but he's going to substitute for the entire family I'm going to substitute for Benjamin but also all my brothers that are involved I'm going to put my life on the line here in this way and so bottom line you see that 43 supersedes 38 you see that this new Judah this proper Judah is not for himself anymore and he's not making contractual agreements anymore that are for him he's doing everything that he's doing uh, for someone else and ultimately this picture of the father for his father's greater glory Jacob or as we know him to be Israel now um, like I said you know this gets into some personal narrative with me that's his third component one thing that I want to say just to start out with a little background on uh, Benjamin Benjamin it was said of him when he was born when Rachel had him now Rachel's going to die after she has Benjamin and one thing that that she said about Benjamin uh, she called him Benoni which means son of my sorrows and Jacob will say about Benjamin no his name shall be Benjamin which means son of my right hand and the right hand of God or the right hand picture um, has to do with the comfort or a deep affection. Uh, in Song of Solomon later on, the bride is going to say in the, the latter parts of Song of Solomon, and you know, go listen to Dark Night on the Song of Solomon if, if you want to. 
at this point. And also, let me just highlight, listen to Ruben's restoration, because it really is a companion with this uh, this episode. But in the Song of Solomon, the bride, she makes a statement. She says, his left hand is behind my, is cradling my head. Then she makes a statement, I hope his right hand will hold me. And when you look at the right hand picture, the left hand, which is what I believe is on the back of the head, highlights like prophetic revelation or or understanding about Scripture and how you relate to the Lord. But to be a whole person, you, you both need the left hand of God and the right hand. And so the right hand is a place of comfort, you know, uh, comfort by way of the cross. And so, and also, I believe it's in Psalms chapter 16, it says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Benjamin was the only son that was born in the land of promise. All other 11 sons were born in the wilderness. And so Benjamin, in in reality, uh, for us and who he represents is someone who he's the little brother. He's the youngest brother here. Uh, and But he represents like the one that has the silver uh, spoon in his mouth, so to speak. Uh, you remember from the story that the Benjamin is going to be given five times the blessing on his life that all the other 11 brothers are, are going to receive. They're, they're going to receive all of their resources back, but Benjamin is going to be given uh, you know, five times the portion that they are given. And in addition to that, this, this silver cup. And so there's this component of Benjamin that is different and stands outside of the, uh, the other brothers, the other 11. And of course, Joseph tribes are going to be broken down into two. He's going to receive two tribes, both Manasseh and Ephraim. Here's another picture. King David uh, will be with a Benjamite as he's developed. Uh, Benjamin Saul, uh, King Saul, was a Benjamite. Um, It said that he stood a head taller than all the other men and was very handsome. I think that uh, Benjamin is a very uh, intellectual person is extremely skilled probably with rhetoric and debate i believe that israel wanted to choose a benjamite because they're just phenomenal at uh security and securing a nation now i would think of benjamin more like our present day cia uh nsa all of our intelligence agencies all grouped into who he is they have this uh amazing ability to look deeply into matters and perceive them uh, culturally and all different types of personalities and view things uh, very profoundly. Benjamin's son is the son of the uh, wolf, and uh, a wolf has this incredible capacity to just last for long periods of time as an apex predator. The only other apex predator that's accorded with the uh, brothers is Judah, and he's a lion. But the thing about Benjamin and uh, Judah both being uh, having symbols given to them as a lion and as a wolf is the wolf can outlast the lion. Uh, the, the lion can take big leaps and devour uh, big prey, but, the, but Benjamin can outlast them when it comes to um, staying on something for a longer period of time. I would like to call Benjamin a kingmaker. I I believe that they're the ones that make kings. Uh, Saul is used by God 
uh, to develop David into becoming the future king of Israel. Rightfully, the tribe of Judah is to rule and to govern. They're, they're giving this, again, this ring, rod, and rope. They're, they're giving the, the judicial, the executive, and the legislative um, developmental process. And so Benjamin is supposed to stand alongside them and work within the security of a nation, like I mentioned earlier, CIA, NSA, you know, the, the different intelligence departments and bring in um, proper security. And so uh, God used a kingmaker, Benjamin, to develop his, his king. Uh, Jonathan, you know, you're going to see him stand right in relationship with David. Uh, they'll become dear friend. And later on, you're going to see that David, when he first begins to govern and rule, he's going to rule with Benjamin, Levi, and Simeon all right there with him. And so you'll see these tribes come together. Uh, uh, Benjamin is is very important in the relationship with Judah. And it was very important in the story of Joseph that Judah laid his life down for Benjamin. It's very important later on. It's, there's so many wonderful stories to tell, but another one is that after uh, David comes to his throne uh all he's ruling the whole entire nation he has all the tribes under him they 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 come to him they say you're bone of my bone flesh of my flesh uh he he's going to jonathan and saul have passed away they're both dead and he's going to say hey bring me one of jonathan's sons is there any benjamite or any of saul's son or jonathan's sons that i may bless and they're going to bring forth mephibosheth uh, the grandson of Saul, who was dropped when he was a baby and lame in his feet. And he's going to bring him, and David's going to allow him to feast at his table. And so David can see and recognize in his own life and his own developmental process uh, and love that he needs to uh, give to Benjamin and bless him. And uh, this shows that David is relational, too, because. Uh, you know, you don't bring lame people to a king's table because uh, a pretentious king would never allow that. He would never allow something broken uh, to be around him. He don't like things that are disorderly or out that are out of order. They want everything to look really pretty and look really nice. And maybe that you can hear that alluding back to Tamar that uh, Judah that has not been dealt with by the Lord can allow broken things around him because. They basically show that maybe in a broken Judah's mind that he doesn't have, that it makes him look bad and it shows a wrong power base and he's not establishing a good vision and he's not leading well because he doesn't have nice things around him. And of course, we can see that that's all shadow and sign stuff, but it's not based in the substance and the person of Christ. My story kind of goes back years ago um, Personally, when I started to have a lot of encounters with the Lord related to the tribe of Judah, and uh, I don't know that I could detail all of those out. You can listen to the one on kingship called the Eastern Prince if you would like, but I go through a story of basically how that foundation was laid in my life. And then there's another one, I believe, called Shell Shock that describes this work uh, concerning kingship. I, I think that I've had so many encounters related to this that I got into a place where I would be actually have to deny the Lord if, if these objective things hadn't happened and they weren't true. 
And so the tribe of Judah figured really prominently into my life. And I also uh, started to meet other brothers and, you know, of different tribes. And they would come up and say, you know, I'm from this tribe. The Holy Spirit has identified me this way. And it's a really interesting journey uh, for me personally. But one, you know, just significant thing that happened probably, I guess it's been about five years ago. I'm recording now in 2019, but was a a pastor friend of mine, we start to realize that he's from, you know, the tribe of Benjamin. And so I end up getting to, for a number of years, end up the Benjamin in my life, who we end up finding out that he's from the tribe of Benjamin probably five years into our relationship. So we've been in a, a friendship relationship for about a decade. And I'm, I'm purposefully not going to mention his name in this uh, episode, just to, you know, protect him. Um, sometimes I mention people's names, but I just don't feel like I should in this one. Um, after approximately around five years, we start to realize that, and uh, through dialoguing and things, that he's in the tribe of Benjamin, and he starts to have encounters with that. And man, it just matches up with his personality and who he is, and and he just starts to relate to that. Now, I, I want to say this because I don't know if you have a listen to this if you have a tribal motif here in relating to one of the tribes. And this is just the pastoral side of this. If this hasn't been revealed to you or you don't identify with this, please don't see it as like that you don't measure up or you're, you don't count or you just give it time. And I, I'm not sure personally if the word relates to everybody like this. And so I just want to say that also. But if you do, maybe you relate to this. If you don't, don't let it, please don't let it bother you. There are uh, 12 constellations in the heavens, and they do relate to the tribes. There are a total of, I believe, uh, there's a number of minor constellations, and they all tell a story. And so what, what I'm, in effect, doing here is I'm telling a story from a, let's say, a soteriological, what I mean is just a process of salvation, and also a cosmological the heavens and how they declare his glory and so I'm, I'm basically weaving this together in this I am not and I just want to make this clear laying a solid foundation here for what I'm describing to you and you can search that out I would recommend that you do the Proverbs 25 too. it's the glory of God to conceal a matter it's the glory of a king to search it out don't be offended or in fear concerning this material. And I just need to throw that in there from the Lord, you know, for you, because it, you may may or may not relate to this material. Nevertheless, there are, and myself in particular, and other people that I've met in particularly, that do relate to this, and, uh, and in, maybe in some way this would be helpful for you. Anyways, approximately five years into our relationship, uh, the Benjamin in my life begins this revelation starts to happen, you know, about it's kind of solidifying up that, man, I identify with Judah, and he's like, you know, I identify with Benjamin, and uh, these objective proof encounters start to happen with the Father, and it's not too, I'm pretty sure it was either before this or after this, I, th- I think it was around the time this revelation was coming, I was spoke to by the Lord, and he says, I want you to, to take your wife's car, and, and I want you to give her a car away to this Benjamin. 
you know, you have to understand our family, we live by faith. We, we're uh, attempting to be good stewards of what we have. This car had been given to her by her dad. Uh, I had checked with him before I made any transactions to make sure that he was okay with the way that I may handle the vehicle, and he had said that that was fine. And so, and then Karen and I talked about it. I don't know what kind of view you have in your families, but I take a complementarian stance instead of an egalitarian one or a male dominant one. So I'm not seeking to dominate my wife, nor am I saying that that a male doesn't have headship in his family. And so in a complementarian view, I, I presented this to my wife and asked her to pray about it. I think she cried about it, but I, the Lord had spoke to me. He's like, I want to start you on a journey to lead you you and your family towards a home, a family home. And I want you to put a seed in the ground. I want you to give it uh, to Benjamin. And he's he in turn is going to give it to his wife. And uh, I think my wife kind of felt like, well, man, that's not fair because that's going to leave us with a one-vehicle family. She's going to be without a car. And why give away your car that's hers to another to another man's family? And uh, But nevertheless... Uh, her and I made the decision, and uh, I would say the car was probably valued around $1,200. We checked it, and it was, you know, approximately $1,200. And uh, But this is what the Lord spoke to me and said. He said, you know, when you give this car away, I'm going to give you a car 10 times the value of it. And I told her that. And of course, I have nothing to go off of except my relationship with the Father. So we... Uh, uh, we went. We got the title. The car was ours, free and clear. I think the car was actually in my name, and we went and we gave it to Benjamin and his family. And um, I remember that day so much because we had went to the bank and uh, because I had to have it notarized. And I and I remember her crying, and I remember sitting there thinking, "Man, I'm taking something from her to give it to someone else. And what kind of man am I to do something like that?" But we held hands and prayed together. You know, for us, this is very amazing what happens after this, but something happened in our marriage after that moment. It was like our level of some of the conflict that we had been facing and some of the things that we have been not fully integrated in as a couple, it's kind of like it went away. We had this, like, new place together, uh, covenantally. And, uh, and after the signatures were made and she made, you know, I made my signatures and we went and gave it, we were so happy, you know. It just made us feel so good, and I, and both of us were in agreement. It was actually a really wonderful moment, and it didn't end up being maybe like some of the things that I would have been afraid about were abated, and the situation wasn't as big a deal as I thought it would have been. About three weeks later, it's at night, and we're Kara and I are laying in the bed together, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and He says, "Tomorrow." such and such a person he tells me the name of them and they too would not want me to tell their name in this episode but such and such a person is going to call tomorrow and give you your inheritance i'm going to bless you with like i said i'm going to bless you with a home paid it for outright uh, not like a bank loan but a, a full paid off home i'm going to um, pay for two brand new cars everything will be paid for and you will have no debt and the Holy Spirit speaks this to me, and I, I, I asked Kara, I said, would you, you know, hold my hand and pray? And she agreed, and we uh, we held hands that night, and we said, we thank you, Lord. We just come in agreement 
tonight that you're going to um, bless us with an inheritance. Some This person, such and such, is going to call tomorrow with our inheritance. The next day, I'm at the gym working out. Kara's working out. I get a phone call from my dad, and he says, someone anonymously wants to give you a car. And uh, and I say, really? And he said, yes. And Carol, I just want to say this right off the bat. My dad's telling me this. Please don't. Please don't decide to give this car away or to just get rid of it. And I said, Dad, if someone's given a gift, it has to be freely given or I just can't receive it. I can't put stipulations on a gift because I had learned that you don't do that with gifts. If you're going to give something away, just give it away and be done with it. Don't put stipulations on it. And he said, oh, no, son, you're going to offend him. So for a few days, I'm kind of dealing with this thing where I want to respect my dad but I have this sense that the Lord has given us something, but it's not necessarily something that we're going to hold on to. Well, with, by Thursday, the person who was giving us the vehicle gives me a call. It was the exact person that the Lord had told me that Sunday evening. And they said, you know, and I said, well, I want to ask you a question. Is this gift free? I mean, am I free to do with it what I want? And they told me, you can sell it, you can drive it, you can give it away. I do not care. It's a free gift to you. So I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. So uh, we received the car and uh, went and picked it up and received it. And I asked the Lord, I was like, what do you want me to do with this? And the Lord said to me, showed me, I want you to liquidate the car. I want you to go take it to this guy. His name's Dan in the Candler area. I end up talking to one of my friends. He's like, you can take it up there and liquidate it. Well, bottom line and it takes like some five or six months later and i was had grown impatient now i was learning about the tribes and this guy's name's dan and there's a passage in genesis 49 18 that says speaking of dan for your salvation i wait O lord and i was learning how to be patient in regards to waiting on the lord you know when you're making exchanges financial exchanges because i wanted to liquidate this car as quickly as possible and so uh, the day that I'm just about stressed out and I'm about to call Dan and tell him I'm gonna take it off the lot two hours later it sells and get this it liquidates for twelve thousand dollars ten times exactly what the Lord had said the value of the car I originally gave away now you have to listen to JP Morgan and the clearinghouse to kind of understand you know the way I look at money and view things financially because I can't go through all that right now but 10 times the amount and with this is what the word had shared with me to do he's like I want you to take that liquidation of that car and give 100% of the $12,000 to Benjamin so here I am I've went from $1,200 car to now $12,000 cash and so I can't wait though at this point to give it to him I'm excited and his family needs it. He's a church planner, and, you know, and I'm just grateful to give it to him. And so, you know, we'll see, that was in March, I think, of, of uh, 2017 or so, March or April. So the next thing that happens is I'm preaching one Sunday, and the Lord speaks to him, and he says to me, if you have, uh, if you have defeated AI and now, this is a whole story that I'm not including here, but we find out in our family line that literally my family line through my dad goes back through 
Zerah's bloodline to Judah through DNA testing, and and there's this one DNA strand thing with my dad's bloodline that shows that it goes to Judah, and uh, but through Zerah, not through Perez's bloodline, but through Zerah. And the Lord tells me this time in September of 2017, if you've defeated AI. Now, you have to understand AI, there was this big debacle. Israel had come in to take Jericho, and then they go to take AI, and 36 men die. And they come to find out it was because of this man, Achan's sin. And Achan had stolen a Babylonian garment out of Jericho and some silver and gold and placed it under his tent. Achan had effectively got into idolatry and adultery with what he had done. Um, He wanted beauty and he wanted finances before the Lord would give it to him out of a relationship. He wanted to take it and he had violated his first fruits offering that Israel was commanded to take every good out of Jericho and give it his first fruits to the Lord. So the Lord shares with me that if you defeated AI, oh, one thing I need to say here is Achan is from Zerah's bloodline. He's a Judean. And so if me and my family are in that bloodline, which I believe that we are based off of, you know, 23andMe evidence, then in my own bloodline is Zerah's bloodline, then that same problem, Achan's sin, is in my own bloodline. And that that's to seek to place a place something on yourself, a garment, not braced in Christ's righteousness, but a Babylonian garment, and to grasp at silver and gold instead of waiting on the provision of the Lord. Uh, Again, and you can listen to that kind of concept in the Lucifer Appeal because I, I deal with that concept and also stars to men episode. So with, with that understanding and, and the background on Achan, the Lord speaks to me this time in September says, if you've defeated Achan in your own life and the sin of Achan, I'll give you a piece of land. And, and so the next day, this transaction transpires and I'm able to receive this uh, beautiful piece of lake property for way less value than what I normally would have to pay for it. And so I received land and Kara and I received this really, we're able to purchase a very nice vehicle to take care of our needs as a family. And I have, you know, this whole encounter with that and we come into that. And so we go through this thing where this property that, that we receive is, I would say it's approximately uh, valued at 10 times the amount of what we give away in March or April. So now up to around $120,000. The Lord had made this promise to me that if you keep down this route, I'm going to bring you to a home and everything will be paid for you. Oh, no one. But you'll build a beautiful uh, home, uh, which we hope to build in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Now, the following year, you know, we ended up closing on the land in January of, um, let's see, of 2018. And uh, I guess it was... It was around July of 2018. I woke up one morning by the Lord, and he says to me, I want you to take and give away all of your income to Benjamin. Now, all of your income that comes from MZ Hop, which was our church, and there, there's, a, there's an episode called MZ Hop 7.5 you can listen to, or version 7.5. And so he says, you know, I want you to give away all your income. And so, you know, Kara and I, we have six kids. 
And so any income that comes into the church is all the income we have because we I don't have another job. I don't have another way to provide for my family. And he shared with me, you can get resources from other areas, but it can't come in through the Sunday morning. And during that time when the Holy Spirit said that, he was teaching me, um, and this goes back to, to the beginning of this, he was teaching me about this mediator and, and guarantor. And he was showing me that in the new covenant that it calls Jesus a guarantor. Meaning that if you can't pay, basically if you can't pay your debts, he'll pay them for you. That he will stand in your stead. I had some obligations that I had to take care of and, and I didn't really have any way to take care of them. And so he tells me to give everything I have away and, and he reveals to me himself as guarantor. So he reveals to me that I will take care of any loan obligation or default or anything that you're required uh, to take care of, I'll take care of it for you. But to engage with the guarantor, you have to walk by faith. And so he lifts this whole thing and says, you know, give away everything to Benjamin that you have. And you have to understand this is sort of like a fearful thing for me because I don't have another out. If I'm wrong about this, and this is what was going on in our life, I um, we have uh, you know we have tuition payments for the kids at school that the Lord told us to put put in school. I have bills that were uh, coming on me, and I, I didn't have a way to take care of all these obligations at all. I'm doing exactly what the Lord says, and then when He says take the little your whole income that you that even can't even meet those obligations and give it away to Benjamin. It looked like it was throwing my life into really consummate poverty, like we were just never going to make it. So during this time, I'm just like trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord. And and so I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do every day. And, and one day I'm at the gym and I ended up meeting this guy. Uh, he's a guy worse out there. He just smiles all the time. And uh He's a, a black guy, and him and I became, you know, started to become pretty good friends. His name was Joe, and Joe and I would discuss things about how to relate to other men there, and another one of his friends, and how I was trying to reach him for Christ. And and so one day the Holy Spirit like speaks to me, and says, "I want you to give Joe your um, Garmin Phoenix Three watch." You know, it's a fairly expensive watch, and I was able to receive it years ago. And he's like, "I want you to give it to him." And, and so I, I, uh, I go in the next day and I get the box and all the gear together and I go to Joe and I, I say, uh, I want to give you this watch. Well, Joe is like literally just sort of like overwhelmed that I would give him something. Like he's just like, no, 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 I'm not letting you do this. And I'm like, no, Joe, I, the Lord, you know, wants me to do this and I'm so happy to do it. And, uh, he just sits there like stunned. I mean, for probably like five minutes and looks at me like, I, I don't know if he's thinking this, like, why is Whitey giving me this? I, I don't know. But the way he was looking at me, I'm thinking, he's thinking that. Why is a white man going to do something good for me? Or is he just doing this because he feels sorry for me or something like that? And of course I wasn't. And I told him that I wasn't into patronizing anybody. I didn't feel sorry for him. I truly wanted to do something to bless him. I, I really appreciated our times and talks together. And 
He's just sort of overwhelmed. He comes back the next day and says, I can't take this. My wife said, no way. She's not going to let me have this watch, and uh, I just can't. It's too nice of a gift. And, and I said, no, Joe, it's a gift. I'm, I don't want anything from it. And and so I just have this amazing encounter with him. And and I said, you know, Joe, what is your name? Like, what is your what's your full name? I was like, your name isn't Joseph, is it? He says, yes, my name is Joseph Wendell Bird III. And I don't think it really, like, hit me till like, the next day. Uh, well, it didn't hit me till like, a week later. And I'm just kind of driving, and, and, and it, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and he says, you know, Joseph has been revealed. And I was like, Wow. This is the revelation of Joseph because of the Benjamin thing that we were unpacking during this time and and going through all this pressure and thing. I was like, you you just revealed Joseph to me and and I I was really overwhelmed by it because that revelation came and I I knew that there wasn't something I could make up and and what was wild and it it really ends up connecting to uh, another episode that I'm going to have about the Sapphire Throne. But it just spins up into this whole new encounter with the Lord related to that. And, you know, the coolest thing happens. I get a couple phone calls from a couple people. And this may sound like a lot to you, and I hope that it doesn't bother you. But within like a week, you know, we receive like $46,000 in income. And uh, I just, I'd had obligations happen that year. And some things happened that I needed to to care for our kids' tuition, and it just was all paid for. I mean, within a week. And right after this Joseph reveal happens, and our, our life is, we're just so excited because it wasn't like we, you know, we're not asking anybody for anything. We're just trusting the Lord, and he, he took care of everything. And I got to know Jesus as guarantor. I, I got to see the difference between you know mediating on your own behalf and what happens when you when you just lay it all on the line for him and you know i got to see that and i and also you know my wife and i received this amazing future promise of our our house and uh land and uh to be built and to do it debt free i mean to do it without having to be obligated or uh, owe anybody. I want to encourage you as I'm coming to the close of this this episode, uh, the Joseph Reveal, I, I, I want to encourage you to trust the Father and your relationship with Him. I want to encourage you not to look at seed the little bit that you have and despise it. I don't want you to despise a day of small things. Um, a lot, you know, I talked to a, an economist not too long ago and he shared with me that this kingdom methodology that I'm describing here really is the true economy. That a lot of the economy and the way it's developed and built upon, and again, you can listen to J.P. Morgan and the Clearinghouse, but a lot of it's built on a lot of these banking procedures and things. It's just further enslaving us. It's not liberating us. And that we need to walk in a place of liberty. But in that place of liberty comes a change of character and like it happened with Judah. It's got to come from seeking what is good for me to really substitute and laying your life down. I want to encourage you in trusting the Father. Uh, 
and when he calls you to give something of your own away, when it appears that by doing that, it would be detrimental even to your own family. I want to encourage you to, to give, to lay your life down as he leads you. Uh, you know, that my story and my family story is our story, and you have your story. But I want you to build a history with God, uh, a story upon which you can walk in a place of liberty. Um, you can receive his nature, and you can be transformed and changed by him being your benefactor. And you can fully place your trust in him, that he has a wonderful plan for your life. And so let's, let's just close and, and that he has a revelation of Joseph, a revelation of bringing scepter and birthright together. Lord, I just ask you, Lord, and, and thank you for everyone listening today that, that there would be an integration that would happen in their lives. Uh, Jesus, I just I ask you that, that when you move on us to move by faith and to trust you, Lord, when it seems like that it's, it's going to not work out for you know, our own good or even our own family's good or even a nation's good, Lord, that we would go on the line to do that which is right, to follow you, Lord, to do it your way. Lord, this is your way, this penal substitutionary atonement, and Lord, that we would, you know, disconnect from those other theories. Lord, I pray for grace right now for even if, just like give us the grace to understand what it means to substitute our lives in the stead of others, Lord. Help us not to seek to retain our life, but to lose it for your sake and for the gospel's sake. Lord, that you don't mean for our lives to just be um, broken down and impoverished uh, like that poverty mentality, Lord, but you mean to bring us to something profound and and wonderful. But Lord, you, you, you would give us character and you give us your nature, Lord, so that what we steward and what we bless others by would be um, life-changing for them as it's been for us. Use us as agents for change in other people's lives as we lay our lives down uh, for, for your sake and the gospel. In your name we pray, amen. Oh
Reflect in the sky And our eyes have been on